Well, good evening, Eastside family. Uh, tonight we are not meeting in person, but uh, we're going to do our Bible study virtually uh, through Facebook Live. And my prayer is that this will be uh, an encouragement to you, even though we are not able to physically meet together. But uh, as we move forward in our Bible study of Created to Draw Near, I hope that uh, the time that we have tonight uh, will be a blessing and a help to you. Uh, let's bow before the Lord and ask his blessings upon our time of study tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for how gracious and merciful you are to us. And Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity, Lord, to study your word, uh, to learn more and more truths uh, from it. And uh, Father, that we might be drawn into greater fellowship and communion with you. Father, I pray your blessings upon this time of study. May we learn more of you, Father, and more of your word. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're moving into chapter number 23 of our study of Created to Draw Near. And we're moving into uh, a, a focus on the Gospel of John. In both of the chapters that we're looking at tonight, he looks at the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And in chapter 23 focuses on the wedding at Cana. John chapter 2 verse 1 says that on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And what's interesting about this story, and he points this out in the chapter, is this reference to the third day. And then, of course, as we read this, the question arises in our minds, the third day of what? And there are several possibilities of what this could be. Uh, it could be the third day since Jesus' baptism. Uh, like, for example, that uh, John chapter 1 talks about where John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan River and he sees the Lord Jesus come and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we have a couple of references in John chapter 1 to a, the sequence of events in which it says, the next day, Jesus did something, verse 29. And then a little bit later on, it says, the next day, Jesus did something else. And, and then the last thing that we read about in John chapter 1 is Jesus calling disciples to himself. So one of the possibilities is that this reference to the third day is just a reference to some of the events that were described in chapter 1. Another possibility is that this is a reference to the third day of the week, or possibly even the third day of the wedding ceremony. In the early, uh, in the ancient world, in the land of Israel, when they would have a wedding, it was not just a, a short, you know, 30 minutes and then a reception and you're done. Uh, usually in Israelite culture, a wedding feast would last a week. And so the th reference to the third day could even be in reference to the wedding feast itself. But he suggests that there is something deeper that is going on here, that John, the apostle, the, the gospel writer, wants us to think about, and he wants us to make this link. And so he suggests in the chapter that what John is doing is in this wedding at Cana, that he puts at the front of his book of the gospel of John, that he is pointing to something greater to come. And he's pointing to a better wedding after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says what John is doing here in counting the days on the third day, he is 
anchoring his calendar, if you will, to the Passover celebration, which factors prominently in the Gospel of John. And so he suggests that that John's counting of the days is analogous or linked to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so on the first day, day one, we have Jesus is crucified. That would be a Friday. So on the Friday, the day of preparation for Passover, Jesus is crucified. And then the next day, Jesus rests in the tomb, in the earth on Saturday after his crucifixion, which is also the Sabbath. And then on the third day, Jesus is resurrected as he promised that he would rise again on the third day, which is also the first day of the new week. And so he is suggesting that John, in this reference to the third day, wants us to make this link to the significance of the third day of Jesus' resurrection. And so in this story, Jesus is turning water to wine. And at an event like this in the Israelite culture, there would have been uh, basins of water, jars of water, that they could use for ceremonial cleansing, for purification. And those uh, basins or jars of water would have been something that would have been found both at a Passover celebration as well as at a wedding. So that at both a Passover and a wedding, there would be the need for ceremonial cleansing or purification. And this is the water that Jesus then turned into wine when they ran out of wine at the wedding feast. And he suggests that this is symbolic of Jesus' blood of the blood of his new covenant, for example, that we read about in 1 Corinthians 11.25. And he says, what we have to remember is that John is writing this about the life and the ministry of Jesus, but the readers of John's gospel, they're reading this decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, after he's already ascended to heaven. So, the readers of John's gospel have the benefit of hindsight, if you will, of how these events played out. They know the stories. John is just laying them out here in a theological organized fashion to reveal Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. But many of his readers would have already heard and known about these events in the life of Jesus. And so he says, when Jesus turned this water into wine, it was symbolic of the blood of the new covenant. And so we no longer need water for cleansing. The cleansing water is now replaced by the blood of Jesus, which alone can cleanse from sin. And so we don't need the the ceremonial purification of outward cleansing. We need the application of the atoning blood of Christ for total, for complete cleansing from sin, which this turning water into wine symbolizes that Jesus' blood now replaces all of these Old Testament ceremonies and rites. And he suggests that this wedding on the third day, this event that John says happened on the third day, is foreshadowing another third day that is to come. 
And he says what often would happen in the writing of the Hebrews, of the Jews, is that when they were writing a book, they would often use parallelism. And so that something at one point in the book will mirror something that happens later in the book. And so he suggests that this is what's going on here with the Gospel of John, that at the front of John, we have this reference to the third day and this wedding. And then at the end of John's Gospel, so the the backside, the mirror image of the front side, we have another reference to a third day. And so he says, uh, this third day at the beginning of John is preparing us for another parallel third day at the end of John's gospel. And earlier, the counting of the third day in chapter two of John, John was anchoring to the Passover. Now he suggests that at the end of John's gospel with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in John chapter 20, he is anchoring his counting of the days to creation itself. So that as a parallel, we have on day six, Adam and Eve being created. So on the sixth day of the creation week, Adam and Eve are made. And God says, it is all very good. On the sixth day of Jesus' week, which would have been Friday, is the day of the preparation of Passover, and it's the day that he was crucified. And Jesus is called the man in John 19.5. And we know from Paul's writings in Romans that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the second Adam. And so this uh, Adam and Eve, the first man, and Jesus, the new man, the new Adam, parallel at his crucifixion on the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, in the original creation week, we see God resting. Genesis chapter 2 says that after God had made everything, he set apart and sanctified the seventh day, and he rested from his work of creation. So too, Jesus rests in death, in the tomb on the day of rest, on the Sabbath. And then we have the new week. So the, the first day of the new week is a, a new creation, is the beginning of something new. The light dawns, and Jesus inaugurates the new creation with his resurrection. And the most intimate of walks await us. And in that, he's referring back to God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. So after the Sabbath the seventh day, God then initiates his new relationship, if you will, with his image bearers, with Adam and Eve, and begins to walk with them in this new garden, this new world that he had just made. And he suggests parallel to that is the resurrection of Christ that inaugurates a new day, a new time for us to walk in his light. He says this at this point in the chapter, This, writes John, is a new day. The Passover has finally caught up to its true meaning in the sacrifice of God's Lamb. The temple and its promise of God's presence has given way to the picture of marriage. And so the Passover, Jesus the Passover Lamb, now in this wedding at Cana, It is symbolizing another aspect of our relationship, of our communion with God, and that is of the the closeness, the intimacy of marriage. He says, we are royal priests and we are bride priests. 
priestly nearness to God cannot quite capture the intimacy that has been God's goal with us. And so scripture is merging another identity. In other words, he says, there are many analogies, many pictures in the scriptures that portray our relationship with God. The nearness of priests to the presence of God is one of those pictures. But he says, now another picture is entering in, and that is the picture of marriage. And that this describes to an even greater depth the intimacy, the closeness, the nearness of relationship that God desires to have with us as his people. And so, for example, Isaiah 62 verse 5 talks about this relationship between God and his people. Isaiah says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you, a reference to the Lord God. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And so throughout scripture, we have this analogy of marriage in describing the relationship of God to his people. And it's really about communion. It's about relationship. It's about fellowship. And he reminds us that holiness is not the ultimate goal, but communion with God is. So throughout this whole study of this book of Created to Draw Near, talking about the priesthood, we've talked many times about the importance of holiness, of the priests being set apart, consecrated unto, unto God for service to him so that they might minister in his presence and be near to him because this is the only way for sinners to come into the presence of a holy God is to be made holy and consecrated and set apart. But he says, really, the holiness is not the end in itself. The holiness is the means that God uses to draw us near. And so that is how God brings us close to him by making us holy as he is holy. And we see Jesus even in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, talking about this nearness and really what the ultimate goal is of Jesus' atonement for his people. He says in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone, that is for his original 12 disciples, but he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So those that his disciples would then reach and bring into his fold. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You can see that closeness there. Father, I am in you and you are in me. And I pray for them that they may be one in unity with one another and in unity with the Father, Son, and Spirit. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. It's that closeness of communion relationship so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And notice what Jesus says here. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus sanctified 
made holy his people so that they may be one with him and be in his presence. He says, fellowship bound up with worship, praise, and downright enjoyment is what we are after. And it all rests on his nearness and invitation to draw closer. So Jesus came to a wedding in Cana and turned water into wine to symbolize the newness of relationship that we have with God in his cleansing blood. His, his blood is the new wine of the new covenant. And so he is drawing us near. He's making us not only priests, he's making us his spouse in marriage so that we might draw near to him and that he would be in us and we in him. And so Jesus is our bridegroom. And then in chapter 24, he brings our attention to the second half of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, where we see Jesus identified as the temple. And so following the wedding in Cana, we see this instance in John chapter 2, verse 13. It says it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Again, interesting, isn't it, that many of these events in the Gospel of John are linked on the calendar to Passover. He says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So Jesus comes in and he sees all this commerce, buying and selling and all the noise of all the animals going on. And he's angry. He's filled with righteous anger and indignation. And he casts them out of the temple courtyards. And he says, one of the main purposes of the Jewish people, of God choosing them to be his people and then establishing his presence among them in the temple is so that they would be a light to the nations. And so the temple itself and its courts were walled and they were reserved for Israelites, but God had a place for the Gentiles to come near. Gentiles were permitted in a large courtyard beyond these inner walls. And he suggests that it's in this area, in this outer courtyard, if you will, where all of this commerce is going on, which is problematic, isn't it? Because that is interrupting the worship of the nations, the Gentiles coming to the presence of God. And so worship had been replaced by commerce. The temple was intended to be a light to the nations, but the worship of the Gentiles was being disrupted. God's purpose for Israel was being interrupted because they were treating it like a marketplace. And so Jesus was angry when the nations were being kept from seeking the Lord. And in this context of the temple and casting these money changers out of the temple, Jesus says these words, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, at which the people are just shocked that Jesus would make an audacious statement like this. And they say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But Jesus was talking about his body. 
the temple that he was referring to was himself. And so the temple would be destroyed. Interesting enough, Jesus says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. He says in the chapter that this was not a parable. That that temple building, in fact, in history, would be destroyed. And we know that that was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed it. And so that physical building temple would be destroyed. But Jesus' body would not ultimately be destroyed, would it? He would die, he would be put in a tomb, seemingly destroyed, but it would not be the end because he would rise from the dead to be the living temple. And so we see this reference in Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the temple. Uh, in concluding this chapter, Ed Welch says, Jesus is the temple, John writes. God's signposts have always pointed to Jesus. The temple is just a copy. So that beautiful physical temple was really just a copy, just like the tabernacle was. Remember when God gave the instructions for the tabernacle to Moses and he says, build it according to the pattern I show you. The writer of Hebrews says that there is a tabernacle in heaven after which that earthly tabernacle was patterned. So too, this physical building temple, it's, it's really just a, a foreshadow. It's just a pattern that, uh, or it's just a copy of the ultimate, which is Jesus himself. Jesus is the original. Worship is now centered on him. His body and his blood became our way to pass through the veil that quarantined the most holy place. Jesus became the means of entrance into the holy of holies. And so he says, if you want to see something more magnificent than the glimmering temple that once stood over all Jerusalem, he says, look at Jesus. Jesus is the temple. Because Jesus brought God near, didn't he? Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14, the word was made flesh and pitched his tent, pitched his tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus is the temple. He is the presence of God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, he has declared him. He has revealed him, made him known. And so Jesus is the temple. For the rest of this study of created to draw near, we're going to be focusing on how Jesus is the one who ultimately brings us near to God. He can do that because he is the presence of God. He is the temple. And so all of these Old Testament pictures, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in that original uh, paradise tabernacle, if you will, going through the the tabernacle that Moses constructed and then the priesthood of Aaron and all through the history of the Old Testament, all of it was pointing to Jesus. And now in Jesus, he is the temple. He is the veil. He is the way 
which God has given for us to come near to him. He is the Passover lamb. His blood was shed for us. He is the temple. Through him, we come near to God. And so may Jesus fill our vision today if we want to see our holy God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus has come, that he has come to bring us the new wine of the new covenant, that his blood would be shed as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation to assuage your wrath, that we sinners might draw near to you, a holy God. Father, we thank you that Jesus has come as, a, as our Passover lamb. We thank you that he has come to be our bridegroom, to celebrate the, the new uh, covenant that we have with you. We thank you that Jesus is our temple, that in him we have the means of entrance into the most holy place to come and to dwell in your presence. Father, I pray your blessings on your people. I pray that these times that we have in this study of thinking more and more about these truths of how we are priests and you've created us to draw near in your presence. Lord, I pray that these times would be enlightening but also encouraging to us and motivating to us in walking in your truth and in your light. Father, bless us as your people and we pray this in the name of Christ, amen. I pray that God will bless you the rest of this week. And we look forward to worshiping you this Lord's Day. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.